0: For today's episode of Iconicast, we visit Joe Rahm to speak about his recent book on communication and messaging. Mike Halberg is visiting Yosemite National Park today, so he is not available. We have 25 centuries of evolution of the rhetorical form to cover, so let's just get right into it. You are Joe Rahm, the author of How to Go Viral and Reach Millions, Talk Persuasion Secrets from Social Media Superstars, Jesus, Shakespeare, Oprah, and Even He Who Shall Not Be Named. Uh, yes, Lord Voldemort. And he wasn't a very good communicator, Lord Voldemort.
1: No, Lord Voldemort was not a, a, a great communicator. Uh, but then again, if you, if you have magic powers, uh, then you have something equivalent. And, and I- indeed, the people who, who have the ability to be very persuasive, it's often been uh, actually metaphor uh, analogized to magic powers. That's, you know, we say someone's charming, charm, magical spell. We cast a spell on someone, so uh, the the connection between being very persuasive uh, and charismatic and and having magic powers is is goes back you know thousands of years. Absolutely, I just want to also give the the audience a bit of
0: context and disclosure. You and I actually go back quite a ways. Back in the early days of blogging, we both were blogging, and I think we had each other on our blog rolls. Your um, brother was a Twin Cities native and although I did not know him we had a lot of friends in common uh because of his involvement in the whole science fiction community here and more recently we are often in contact discussing by email things that uh, about how to communicate especially how to communicate in climate science areas but we've never spoken with the, with a spoken word we've only we've only communicated indirectly therefore it's a great idea that we're having this chance to have a discussion about communication on our podcast.
1: And I hear you using the and-but-therefore strategy, uh, which I know we will get to.
0: I I guess I was. It was just automatic. I read your book, and it's become automatic for me now.
1: It is very interesting to me that this which is in chapter two which which basically encourages people and we'll get into it more to 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 not just say and 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 but to use the word but and and use the word so and therefore to create uh something more approximating a narrative is is the thing that people just grab onto and say you know it's changed the way they write speeches or 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 the way they hear things and you know i am very data driven being a scientist by training I bought the Kindle to my own book so I could see which passages are the most marked up, since that's good feedback. And needless to say, chapter two and all of the quotes around, you know, this and but therefore strategy are by, by far the ones that are the most highlighted on, on Kindle. Yeah,
0: I think it's, uh, I mean, basically for people, I think people should just, we're in marketing or any, even if you're just trying to persuade and do any kind of persuasive writing or communication or speaking, having this kind of background is really important. I hadn't realized the importance until I read your book, the importance of figures of speech. How they're, they're always, they're, they seem in a lot of rhetoric that, I mean, it, for, again, people should read your book to find out, but you go over 25 centuries of literature and pick out the stuff that has survived and analyze it everything from Aristotle from the Old and New Testament and Lincoln and King and everyone else and there's certain patterns you know what are the patterns that make a, a bit of speech memorable and powerful
1: so yes it's uh, you know this this is a really good point and and as you know I tried really hard when writing this book to practice what I preached and and make the book readable because there are a lot of books on communications that are very academic and frankly hard to read. And you're wondering, well, how is this person trying to teach me about communications? And the book is not that interesting. Right. So yes, I think that, you know, all the evidence, whether it's social science or marketing science, or just the reality of which Forms of communications have survived over tens of thousands of years is that when you're trying to communicate persuasively, you want to tell stories and stories really are the way people remember and learn things. And stories have a certain narrative arc, which is where this and, but, therefore, you know, you, you, you set the scene and then you introduce the dramatic tension with a word like but or yet, and then you have the resolution with a so or a therefore. The, the second piece of, of what is memorable is these memory tricks that the great bards used in, in ensuring that they could remember a two-hour-long epic poem and that their listeners would also remember what they said. Mm-hmm. And these were tried and tested over, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And, and what we hear in terms of, you know, the, the epic poems that survived when so many other stories obviously didn't, these were the first things to go viral. The, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the great hero, hero's journey stories, the stories of the Bible. And those stories used a lot of memory tricks, Uh, and those memory tricks got codified by first by the Greeks and they were called the figures of speech. Mm -hmm. And those figures of speech used to be taught a lot. Um, now they're kind of just taught in passing, you know, in elementary school, maybe some in middle and high school, but the fundamental power of them is these are the things whether and, and by figures of speech, I'm talking about, you know, metaphor, irony, hyperbole, uh, Repetition, rhyme, uh, alliteration, puns. it is it is really the catalog of ways that people talk when they're not being precisely literal. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were those are the things that that help us remember, and that's, of course, why, you know we we remember things that rhyme and and why we remember. Uh, so many metaphors that stick out in our head, and and there's some evidence that the human brain actually it, it thinks metaphorically. Certainly, people like um, uh, you know, people have written entire books, like you know, uh, uh, don't think of an elephant, uh, and the like. That this is a lost art of of persuasive speech, and and I just think. That when you look at what modern marketing science has figured out, which is, you know, you need to be grab people's attention and you need to be memorable. Uh, that's why you know eighty percent of advertising headlines uses you know one or more figures of speech. I'm reminded of a book that actually I I think to some extent has
0: been lost a bit in obscurity, but it's actually by Lakoff uh, and Johnson, "Metaphors We Live
1: By." Uh, yes, absolutely. L- Lakoff, you know, really, uh, and, and and one of the things Lakoff said, in fact, I just uh, uh, am working on a piece uh, that I'm going to publish on Metaphors tomorrow, or actually it'll be Friday, in, in which I, you know, uh, quote some of the, you know, some of what Lakoff has to say, because basically what what he basically says is that modern social science, you know, shows that A lot of our cognitive thinking is done in metaphor Mm -hmm. and you know i don't think that's a surprise uh as i as i discuss in you know the book how to go viral and reach millions Uh, cognitive thought is the most energy consuming metabolic uh, intensive thing that humans do Mm -hmm. so it's no surprise that over the course of evolution and and uh, we develop these shortcuts so we don't have to go through an intense reasoning process every time we're in a new situation, because we often don't have the time. It's certainly not, you know, when we're being evolved, and maybe we hear strange noises, and uh, you know, in 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 the, in the forest, and we uh, are, you know, are we going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out where is noise getting louder, and is it a dangerous noise? If we see everyone else in the tribe running in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. No, you know, we're, we're going to do uh, what we see everyone else doing. And in the case of metaphors, you know, the metaphors are powerful because they compare a situation that we know with something that we don't know. And that's what we're constantly trying to do in life. We have a novel situation. And the first thing you do when you're in an unusual situation is saying in your mind, do, do I know something that's similar to this? Uh, that's again why stories are so powerful. They're a they're a powerful shortcut. Well, maybe I never experienced this, but I heard from somebody that they experienced a similar thing, and maybe that you know, instead of trying to figure it out myself, the my first order approximation decision making is I'm going to do what seems to have worked for someone else uh, in in a similar situation.
0: Right now, there's a, an underappreciated. Way of thinking about human cognition that I was advanced by Terry Deacon, and I, I think he, I, I worked with him in graduate school quite a bit, and I, I think he's really onto something here. He, he's a Persian, he's a he's a, a neurobiologist, but he's a Persian semiotics guy in a sense. And Perse recognized that humans have a form of inference that is not deductive or inductive but rather he called it abduction, where we basically, well, the the great example of it is, of course, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. The way that Sherlock Holmes actually solved crimes is not by deducing facts not in evidence from what was in evidence, but rather by simply knowing about every crime he could possibly know about having had happened. He had them all in all his index catalogs and on his shelves in his offices, and he would simply find a crime that had already happened, that was similar to the one he was observing, and then pick out the parts that he couldn't observe. And then he developed hypotheses about whether or not this person was doing this or that. And then he could test those. But it was pattern matching. And pattern matching is interesting. It's what you're talking about. But it's interesting because it's also a way that we can make the most abysmal mistakes. You know, a classic example for me, I was actually working with these concepts in, in, uh, uh, at, at several years ago and thinking about this. And I, I left my office and went to the parking garage to drive home. And I run over to my car, a blue Volvo 740, and the key wouldn't fit. And as I'm trying to figure out why the key won't fit, I'm looking in the back of the car at the car seat, the kid's car seat. I'm saying, somebody removed our car seat <laughs> and replaced it with an almost identical, but not quite with the same milk stains on it. And And what's that stuff doing in the back seat that I didn't put there? Like I had all these Completely ridiculous conclusions about. I was just my, not my car. I was on the wrong floor in the parking structure, but it took me forever to realize that because it had to be my car because that's where it was supposed to be. I mean, it, it it matched all the patterns. It was in the right place. It was the right color. It was the right kind of car. Right time of day. Everything else was right. And it took a while to i mean this whole process took maybe thirty seconds, but it took a long time to convince myself against overwhelming evidence that this simply wasn't my car because it had matched the pattern oh i, I
1: absolutely absolutely pattern matching and the, you know the person who who you know basically won the Nobel Prize for figuring out that that unlike what economists had been modeling that a that human beings are rational that in fact human beings don't make decisions rationally that they use all these shortcuts and dan kahneman and he talks about this in, in thinking fast and slow which i'm sure many of your listeners you know have read yeah. um the point is yes we have developed all these shortcuts um pattern matching to make decisions quickly Uh, And and if you if you spend thousands of hours of doing something, obviously the pattern matching becomes internalized as sort of your intuition. And you know the great chess players, they can look at a chessboard and and you know with a high probability know what the right move is. You know that's exactly what what you are describing, but. The problem is, of course, you you can make you can be tricked. You can be fooled uh, by someone who understands these. And and, and indeed, one of the points of the book is that a guy like Donald Trump is very good at sounding like he cares about a certain kind of voter. You know, he captures the anger of a lot of the, the white working class and others, not that there's any evidence based on his policies that he actually cares about those voters but the point is that uh from its very inception the art of persuasion the art of rhetoric you know people like plato and cicero realized it could be used for good or evil right and you know i i quote in in this chapter i have chapter one you know how to be a winner like trump without being a loser like trump is the, the in in plato's dialogue Gorgias. uh yeah. Uh, where Gorgias, the most famous of the rhetoricians, says, I could go into any town in Greece and argue in front of the town elders with a real doctor who should be the town doctor, and I would always win, and the town doctor would all, would be nowhere.
0: And that's exactly what Trump did.
1: Yeah, and so I talk about how, you know, how we, and he's, you know, you and I both strongly disagree with his policy, and I, obviously, I know, you know, most progressives, uh, uh uh do too but he is good he has a certain skill set and his ability you know he he understands certain aspects of communications that that uh progressives and environmentalists and scientists haven't you know aren't so great at he's really good at repetition <laughs> he is really good at repetition and he is really good at at this kind of branding and he is good at He's really good using metaphors. I mean, he used, uh, you know, drain the swamp, deep state. Uh, now, these were metaphors that were tested. These were actually tested by the big data company, Cambridge Analytica two years earlier under the auspices of Steve Bannon, who, who was on their board. But the point is that, you know, when you get a metaphor that really works, simplifies things, right? How, how should the public think about the, the complicated decision-making process and sort of general mess that they that they view Washington, D.C. You know, well, obviously, it's a very complicated thing with lobbyists and bureaucrats and political appointees and all this. But, hey, drain the swamp. Yeah. Three words. I don't have to think about it. And actually, to give them credit, swamps are complicated biological
0: phenomena. But, <laughs> <laughs> but what, uh, do you think... <clears throat> I, you had mentioned, I, in your, I just happened to watch a, a, an interview today with John Kerry, and I, it reminded me that you actually talked about his speeches in your book. And I, you mentioned another politician, too, I can't remember who it was, who had, who we know changed their speech. They themselves, oh, Clinton, it was Hillary Clinton, yeah. who changed their speeches from their speech writer's work to be basically less effective. You, Hillary
1: Clinton Yeah. Hillary
0: Clinton. But but Bill Clinton, in the meantime, I I would put I guess based upon, you know, thinking about this, I would put John Kennedy and Bill Clinton and George Bush and Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump all in the same category of people who could speak to
1: people. Yes. No, I I think that's true. I would say uh, and and the some of them relied heavily on great speech writers. So like John F. Kennedy, you know, I don't want to take anything away from him, but obviously he had maybe the greatest presidential speechwriter of all time, Theodore Sorensen, right. writing. Uh, and that's where you get, you know, ask not uh, you know, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, which is a classic rhetoric. It's actually called a chiasmus. And George W. Bush also, he was really good at following the script that he was given. Now, uh, Trump, obviously, uh, he has spent 30 years doing nothing but sales and marketing and seeing what, what works. He, you know, 10 years ran a reality show where you get the kind of feedback, the data that that helps you figure out what works and what doesn't, right? You're seeing ratings every, every night you're, you're running focus groups. You learn, Hey, this storyline no longer of interest to people. Oh, but this character, he did this or she did this. And, and, and now people say they're, they're like interested in that person. So, you know, he, he did learn, you know, that kind of, uh, whatever we want to say about Trump, he he had a lot of experience seeing which of these little storylines work, And which didn't. And he is very good at, you know, uh, capturing the news of the day, the news cycle of the day. Now, you know, it was very effective running for president because he drowned everyone else out. It was not. uh, And he got a staggering amount of free free media. He got two billion dollars more in free media being entire speeches broadcast on CNN than than, uh, you know, Hillary got. Wow, uh, it doesn't work so well for governing, and and understandably so, because in governing you actually have real results that people can see. So it's a bit harder to tell a story about them. I mean, you can do so, and Trump always does, but you know it's considerably easier when you're running for president. That's you know sometimes they say you know you you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Right, sure. And and what they're trying to say is you're trying to be inspirational when you're running and poetry of course equals the figures of speech that's what poetry is stories told with the figures of speech so the point just to get back to the to what uh, to you know to how to, the book how to go viral and reach millions um, is that these uh, secrets uh, uh, or the skill set the what works and what doesn't work it's not rocket science it you you it isn't really taught anymore, but you know I'm a great believer in not reinventing the wheel. And the Greeks and the Romans, and then later in English, the Elizabethans figured out a great deal about the art of persuasive and memorable storytelling. And modern social science has pretty well demonstrated that that indeed uh, this these figures of speech and storytelling are to this day. Uh, critical to being persuasive and memorable and going viral.
0: It's very easy to think about someone like uh, Abraham Lincoln as being sort of uneducated. He he learned what he needed to learn about life while splitting logs in the forest, and somehow became president and then and then governed. Uh, yeah. Uh, and and not realize that that was all just made up. And that he actually was a lot very self-educated, but very he studied those same works you're talking about. And he was very careful and thoughtful about his own rhetoric, and made it powerful. Not because he was born with that ability, but
1: because he used he used that knowledge. Uh, absolutely. And Lincoln, you know, of all the presidents, certainly was the the most brilliant orator, writing his own speeches, and and you know the Gettysburg Address, uh, arguably the most viral. Political speech in, in, in the English language, certainly in the United States, in America. And yes, he put a lot of effort into figuring this out. And, and the Gettysburg Address, as a whole, as I talk about in the book, is, is a highly structured, very well thought out, two and a half minute speech. And it's not, it's not it, it is memorable and rightfully acknowledged as a great speech because of the way it's written. And he also uses a similar and but therefore strategy, uh, you know, a structure. One of the things that, that I learned over the course of, of studying all this was that, you know, people ended up, have ended up with this notion that rhetoric and eloquent speech is somehow this lofty, you know, ancient way of speaking that is disconnected from the way real people speak. Mm. And in fact, the, the whole point, as Aristotle explains in, in his book on rhetoric, um, the whole point was to figure out how people actually do speak and what they say when they're emotional. And so angry people use hyperbole. You know, I'm so mad I could punch your nose down into your stomach type of thing. Right. And understanding that was what was, rhetoric was all about. And in fact... Uh, Studies have shown that everyday people use, you know, uh, four to six metaphors a minute in normal speech. Right. And so the point is that that rhetoric got disparaged starting all the way back in Plato because Plato wanted a republic run by, you know, intellectuals. Uh, who, who would ba- uh, rule on the basis of reason, and he hated the notion that people were, in fact, going to be persuaded by emotional things and, and rhetoric. And sophistry. The sophistry, and indeed, that's why sophistry has, has, you know, they were the sophists. The original rhetoricians were called sophists, and that term has come down disparaging because sophistry be- was identified with people who could argue either side of an argument and win. Uh, And obviously, I think we all can see that that's not productive for for human advancement. But there's still no denying that, you you know, you can use it for good as, you know, Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King did, uh, or you can use it for bad. And I, I, I but the point is, you need to understand it to know when it's being used against you. And you need to understand the parts of it that that you must use. The trick is, you know, tell the truth. You know, don't don't use rhetoric to persuade people of things that aren't true. That's what President Trump is really good at. Uh, Use rhetoric uh, uh, to persuade people of the things that are true, like climate science is real. And and this is a serious problem. There are lots of solutions, but we have to, you know, we're running out of time to act. But there's still a problem, I think, there in
0: that something, I forgot what happened, but something earlier today or yesterday caused me to write a very brief comment, I think I put it on my blog about this, where you can, I can imagine a group of Republicans having a conversation about the red wave and each of them saying, we're gonna have a red wave, we're gonna have a red wave, we're gonna have a red wave, every single, or red tide, whatever you wanna call it, every single one of them. A bunch of Democrats having the same conversation will say, we're gonna have a blue tide, a blue wave, and the next one says, don't say that because people won't come out and vote. They'll assume it's just happening by itself. A third one will say, yeah, but it depends on how progressive you are. You weren't progressive enough, so I'm not going to vote for you. And, and what should have been a chorus of positive, forward-moving, uh, lockstep rhetoric in order to make the blue wave happen becomes a cacophony of munching sounds as they eat their own young. And that, that's considered to be a higher form of politics because you're actually thoughtfully arguing about things instead of just getting a lockstep and saying all the same thing.
1: Look, it, it, there, there is there is no question that a the possible you know abusing this uh, uh, abusing rhetoric is something you know people have worried about for for thousands of years. It, there's also no question that, that Democrats, in particular, are the wonky party, and and we very much focus on on the. Belief, And it is a mistaken belief that all you need to persuade people is more facts, better policies, you know, charts, numbers. And, you know, as scientists, obviously, I spent nine years getting trained that this is how you communicate. And as I say in the book, it's taken me a very long time to unlearn that and and sort of figure out, okay, well, you know, uh, facts – should be the basis for whatever you're trying to sell. But, you know, if you're under the misimpression that people are making decisions on a basis of fact, then you have missed many, many decades uh, uh, of behavioral science research. And what Kahneman says, uh, uh, you know, is, is nobody ever made a decision based on a number. They need a story. Most research suggests, you know, that 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 We make the decision emotionally, whatever the big decision is, and then we backfill it. (laughs) We search for the reasons, you know, to rationalize it. And then so we develop a story. But, you know, so I think that, yes, uh, there's no question the Republican Party is better at getting everyone to march in a lockstep message. You know, when I ask, I say people, you know, tell me what the arguments are against Obamacare. Well, everyone can do it because they've heard it repeated by every single, you know, Republican and conservative, you know, government uh, you know, bureaucrats inter- getting between me and my doctor and and you know, etcetera, etcetera. Can you name the the main argument on behalf of Obamacare? Well, there wasn't one main argument. And and as a result, people ha- don't remember it. And and I think the key point uh, and this took me a very long time to re- realize, in, in public speaking, the goal isn't to get people to walk away remembering three or four or five things, like your list of policies. The, that's never going to happen. You know, the, the question is whether you can get them to remember one main thing or nothing about you, and then some other person who's good at metaphor and repetition and storytelling gets to to, to, to brand you. Right. And, and look, that's what, you know, look, uh, you know, whatever you want to say, uh, you know, about Trump, you know, when you think of Hillary Clinton, you know, what is one of the first words that comes into your head? Her emails. <laughs> well, emails and crooked Hillary. Right. I mean, right. And, and she was not crooked, but whereas if, if I were to ask you to, what are the one or two things that, you know, Hillary was going to do once she was elected? Right, yeah, there's a problem, I can look it up on the web somewhere. Right, whereas build the wall, you know, you know what, Trump, right? So, and again, it's, it's I, I think the point is, I, I think the point is, and I talk to scientists about this all the time, I don't, it's is not to, to make a value judgment on on what persuasive speech is, but simply to understand what it is. I'll give you one example. One example I use a lot when I'm talking to scientists. When, for One of the shortcuts that people Use when they're trying to figure out if they believe you or not. I mean, there's two main shortcuts Are you in my tribe, right? Are you one of us? And number two, are you sincere sounding and the sincere sounding isn't based on Someone adjudicating, uh, uh, you know, climate science, you know, if you speak to A, 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 a bunch of lay people on climate science. They're there with charts and figures. They're not in a position to adjudicate the science so they're going to make a decision on whether you sound like a credible person telling that kind of story. And the problem is that if the, the story is one of a grave existential threat and if you simply give a dry recitation of the facts rather than have the emotions most people would have discussing a grave existential threat which is kind of like I am really outraged we're doing nothing and that there is this mass disinformation campaign out there, then yes, you, you, you are really undercutting your own credibility and authenticity because you're just not sounding the way such people sound in the thousands and thousands of stories that we heard, you know, particularly in the first 10 years of our lives. And, and it's those stories that tell us whether someone has the ring of truth or not.
0: One of the things that, I I have two experiences that are similar. A few weeks ago, uh, two months ago, I went to a a training conference for leaders in Indivisible. And one of the things that was, a lot of time was spent on was how to develop a personal narrative. A few weeks later, I went to a conference uh, on genetics. And the keynotes, there were three keynotes. And the first keynote gave a talk. And in his talk, he, out, he it was a fantastic talk. Honestly, when I talked to him privately before and after hearing him, he was, I would not have walked away saying, wow, what an articulate, well-spoken person. He was just a regular guy. But when he was giving his talk, he was like, this guy's Franklin Roosevelt on science. And I, so I, I button-hauled him later and I said, where did you get trained to do the personal narrative part? And he said, oh, well, that was from Ted... Ted has a training program where he learned to do it. Uh, right. And yeah. I, I think this is basically—it's uh, a really important thing. If you are engaging for any period of time with a group of people, you can use the development of a of a well-crafted personal narrative to make that credibility part come together.
1: Yeah. And and look, I I and and you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't think. You know, I sometimes hear scientists say, "Well, that's talking down to people," and and again, that that is—it's just. What it is, and what I try to do in the book, the book is, is, is quote, enough of the social science literature and the brain re- recent brain research and marketing research. Either you're going to try to persuade people and talk to people the way they talk, or you're going to face the consequences of sounding like somebody uh, that, that simply isn't uh, someone they can connect with. And, you know, it's not talking down. I think uh, hopefully every teacher learns that you – the, the, the basis of whether you're a successful teacher or not is, you know, the ability to communicate to your class or your audience and have them walk away having learned something. Part of what influenced me a lot was having an 11-year-old daughter and simply seeing her develop language over, you know, the first 10 years of her life where it's all stories all the time. And you're either telling stories or you know you're losing her interest i i you know i started the book by with the little true story when she was three of of my daughter daughter had started saying blah 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 to me right (laughs) and and you know and i i she picked up a lot of phrases and i so my natural response was always ask her you know it was always okay for her to use a phrase as long as she knew what it meant rather than had just heard it so i said you know do you know what uh, blah 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 means and she paused and she she literally said remember to this day you know it's when daddy says something that doesn't matter <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yes yeah, she did know what blah 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 meant and 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 that you know just interacting with her over 10 years and seeing her watch you know the same episode one of uh you know the first book of harry potter 30 right. times or, or memorizing, as she did when she was nine, the full score to Hamilton, you know, just realizing that, that for the first 10 years of our lives, we are so bombarded with stories. And the social science the evidence, the educational evidence, uh, early childhood learning is, is kids can start to appreciate elements of storytelling, at, you know, as early as one, one and a half, and they don't get to logic, you know, until they're about 10 so it is it is those stories that that become the pattern matching they become our intuition what does a hero sound like what does a bad guy sound like you know and unfortunately for scientists heroes are not the ones who go around hedging their statements you're harry potter spider-man you know batman superman they don't go around saying well probably and and the fact is that they are you know morally righteous ultimately you know good people and that's why we admire them but again it's not some unemotional thing in fact
0: the hero leaves with their flaw you know harry potter we happen to be reading harry potter right now with the eight-year-old and harry potter has a really really major flaw which is he can't ask questions of or give information to the adults he always talks himself out of that All they really need to do is get on the cell phone and call somebody or just tell Dumbledore what's happening. But no, they can never do that. And because he never does it, the plot advances and ultimately he gets to solve, he gets to defeat Voldemort at the
1: end of each book. And you could also add, because of that, he learns and changes himself because he's he he is forced to learn the things the adults already know and gain the skills and have the defeats and have the victories and of course that's why we watch because that's why the hero's journey as joseph campbell said is the story uh of all the great you know cultures because why do we watch this story over and over again every disney movie every superhero movie it's because all of us are on a journey to figure out what, what is this world, why are we here, and what's my role in it? And we, we, we go through, you know, uh, and, and so we want to read stories of people who did that right. and learned where their place was, what their superpowers were, or what just makes them special and stand out. That story is the story no one can ever get enough of.
0: In terms of the hero story, I think that sort of modern democratic politicians want to be the wizard and the wizard isn't just in Harry Potter that's actually one of Campbell's archetypes the wise person you know they want to be that person
1: instead of the hero right and and one of the problems is people are are not so trustful of the wizard who knows everything right because there's a lot of, you know, well, you have, you have a lot of bad wizards. Well, and, for every wizard, there's a bad wizard. Half right, of them are and, bad. <laughs> right. And, and, the, and, the, and the which is a really good point, and I talk about this some in the book, the distinguishing feature of the hero is not wisdom. No, it's, it's being flawed, but persistent. And innately good. And, and part of the community right uncorruptible right and and starting off as a regular person that's the you know in joseph campbell's work and it got translated by the great by some screenwriters into into the formula for all modern uh movies uh in a book called the screen the writer's journey and then later more recently a book called save the cat person starts out as a regular person in what's called the normal world so it's luke skywalker or Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, or Spider Man is just starts out as Peter Parker. He starts out as a regular person and he he yes he has mentors along the way and friends who help him and and battles won and lost. But no, he doesn't no no one wants no one there's no movie about an unflawed person who shows up, solves all problems, wins the girl or the boy, and lives happily ever after that's not a story anybody watches even even the really brilliant guys sure i mean the genius of arthur conan doyle was to realize that sherlock holmes was a had to be a very deeply flawed person and and that is why every single i mean you know super detective that there's ever been much like all the superheroes they either have a, you know, a human flaw or they have a weakness like kryptonite, you know, but the point is that, that if, if people were just, you know, brilliant, never made a wrong decision, were indestructible, that's also not an interesting story. I have a question for you. I noticed that you never talked
0: about Franklin Roosevelt in your book and his communication. And I was wondering about that because I think he's a guy who, first of all, I think he wrote a lot of his own work. I think he worked with speechwriters, but he did a lot of his own work. He was a great influencer and one of the most significant moments in American history was probably his first fireside talk where he basically said to everyone, here's how the banking system works, here's what we're doing wrong, and on Monday, I need you all to take your money out of your mattresses and put it back in the banks, please. And then everyone did, more or less, and it was a significant moment turning around in the Depression. But he was this highfalutin, classy guy who was of the upper class and... I don't know how he, uh, I don't know how he spoke. Like, how did he speak in relation to the speech of the time and other things in popular culture at the time, and how people spoke to each other? Was he out of whack somehow? Did he owe his greatness to the smallness of his contemporary, like you know Hoover, or or was he really connecting with people?
1: He uh, no, it's a good point. I you know there's I I focused on either more recent people you know like Oprah or, or Trump right. and. and The people who are associated with the most famous speeches, um, certainly FDR gave some some famous speeches. I would say, yes, he was very good at creating a narrative, creating a story. And uh, that's what the fireside chats were. And he, he was a very persuasive guy. He would, as you say, you know, he would tell a story to convey the message he won and and you know he he obviously uh one of his most famous speeches is one i probably should have written about was the this madison square garden speech uh, this was uh i was just looking up on on october 31st 1936 where he says he, he's talking about the enemies of peace business and financial monopoly speculation reckless banking class antagonist sexual war property. they had begun to consider the government of the United States has a mere appendage to their own affairs. We know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. Never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand up today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. Yeah. You know and i and i'll be frank because i you know uh, obama is 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 a good orator in many respects but he is he was so reluctant to label anybody the enemy whether it was you know he cut deals for the health care bill cut deals with the big health care companies you know and and some people didn't like his climate you you know the original cap famous cap and trade bill because the polluters had gotten brought in whatever you want to say is story has a good guy and a bad guy or a good good woman and a bad woman and if you are going to be a great storyteller as as fdr was then yes you have to identify the people who are against you and why you oppose them and if you don't do that in politics in particular hmm. then someone else is going to tell a story in which you're the bad guy and and ultimately that is really what trump and others uh but trump you know, in some sense above all, with the counter-narrative, you know, not an American, not, you know, an outsider. He's not one of us, right? The central metaphor uh, of, of the conservative movement and, and what Trump realized was that, again, if you want to discredit someone, you want to show that they're not in the group. Yeah. And, you know, obviously that was the whole point of birth certificate and Muslim and and not born in this country and all that stuff that was the shorthand for he's not one of us he's not in our group it was obviously you know loathsome and reprehensible and it was something mccain john mccain himself wouldn't wouldn't do as we famously you know heard as people were memorializing him uh he he's uh, uh, you know someone got up in the audience the woman gets up in the audience and starts saying obama's a muslim and all this and right McCain just cuts him off. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the point is these are elemental things. And, you know, the, the people who were who used them for what we would consider to be good, you know, Abraham Lincoln and, and, and FDR and, and, and Martin Luther King, they, they didn't succeed by rejecting these strategies. They, right. they just used these strategies in the name of inspiration and uniting people. Rather than in the name of, of splitting people and making, pitting group against group, but it's almost as though these strategies have always been there, and they were used
0: to effect by a small number of people who really mastered them at all, you know, throughout history. And in some time in recent years, a subset within our political sphere has sort of drifted away from them and not you, and, 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 and decided something else is better, but they were wrong. And the other, everyone else is continuing to do this to some extent
1: absolutely and I, I, I you know there's no question that, that what you're describing is, is the case you know I, I you know everyone progressive i know is very frustrated with the fact that it doesn't seem like the democrats have a message don't have a story you know yeah, okay being against trump is is you know th- that that works when the other guy is really terrible but it's fundamentally not the way to create and sustain a movement. Because movements are about people joining together to be part of something larger than themselves. And mutual dislike of somebody can unite people, for sure. But, you know, I think what Reagan in particular understood was if you can give the positive inspiration with the metaphor, "Morning in America, the simple storytelling uh, is Critical. And by the way, as you know, in the book, I, I quote Obama was interviewed, I think, by CBS uh, in saying that the single biggest uh, mistake that he thinks he made, and uh, this is near the end of his first term, was that he did not tell, realize the importance of telling a story, a narrative to unify people. It's, it's also just notable that
0: Reagan had a great enemy and also Churchill. Churchill had the best enemy. Yeah. No, no one's ever had a better enemy in, in recent times than Hitler, <laughs> and you know that's and many of Churchill. You you refer to Churchill a few times here. Yeah. A lot of his speeches are, and they they are. Well, he was a by profession basically a writer. He was a journalist. Yeah. And he had, you know, he he was good at it, and and uh, so he had that ability. Uh, when I hear about the the Democratic message, it's interesting because what I hear people saying is the Democrats need a message, so. Here is our leader, you know, whoever it might happen to be that we've elected to run the DNC. So what is the message? What is the phrase or the sentence that is our message? And they don't have it. Therefore, they failed. But none of the messages that Trump has are things that he thought up, you know, four years ago prior to running for president and then just used them. These are things that, as you pointed out, emerged organically or among several different possible messages the ones that work survived. The ones that didn't work didn't. You end up with some very effective rhetoric that way, and and and, and none of it's about policy, or not really. Democrats have have they have messages. They have a whole bunch of them. They have like six or eight or ten messages. Yeah. Uh, it's just that it's, it's not the message that Democrats don't have. It's the belief that you can take our philosophy and convert it into a sentence, and then use that sentence for the next 18 months, rather than simply putting our policy in the hands of people who can really communicate and let them run with it. And the messages will emerge. I mean, they don't emerge organically. These people have to have the idea of what they're doing, but you see what I'm saying? They, they, no, to, absolutely. People need no, to, know I, how to do it, I but agree. they'll do it. You can't yeah. just in advance, like you talk about headlines in your book, like you don't know which headline is going to work. So you try 15 of them and you write, you have 15 headlines that have the, that have what it takes to be a good headline. But among those, Half of them are not as good as the other half, and one of them is 10 times better than the second best one.
1: No, I, I, I agree completely, and I think that, uh, and as you know, uh, you know, being a scientist, that, that scientists also have this sort of view that, well, I don't have to keep repeating myself. You know, I told, people know that. I, we already told them that. Right. You know, I don't have to go through the basics of, you know, the carbon dioxide traps heat and, you know, so we we are left with with a dichotomy there are the there there's sort of the party that is built around thinking that facts and policies and just a better policy or a better quantifiable proof is going to change people and even though our policies are clearly more popular Uh, when you do polling, when you carefully ask people just the right question, they'll give you just the right answer, (laughs) you know, and your point about, about, you know, obviously Trump is not a man with any core beliefs, (laughs) he is a man who understands popularity and critically what makes things go viral. And, and this gets to the headline idea. The the, the thing is, it is, it is, you know, the book is about what is the form in which you should put things if they're going to have their best chance of going viral. Uh, that We might call that tact. The strategic idea that could go viral, that's going to take a lot of effort and knowledge. And, and in, in, in Trump's case, of course, he hired Sam Nunberg to listen to talk radio, uh, conservative talk radio, thousands and thousands of hours. And that's why he realized that there was much more uh, hatred and dislike of immigration and immigrants than the Republican Party had realized, at least there was on the people on talk radio. And, you know, he, Trump was all about whatever message works. Uh, And he even says, when he introduced Drain the Swamp, he said, he, there's a speech in which he says, you know, when I first heard Drain the Swamp, I thought this is, this is never going to sell as a message. But then I used it and people went nuts. And then I started using it more and people went more nuts, you know. And so, the challenge for all of us, particularly in this in the new era, where there is literally a Niagara Falls, I mean not literally, <laughs> there is figuratively a Niagara Falls of noise coming out of the internet. And and to try to compete with that and break through with that, it's just not gonna work unless you are using the best, most best documented practices for having content that people uh, that grabs people attention and keeps it which is you know in the modern parlance being clicky and sticky and and you know the the advertising people have spent millions and millions of dollars studying that and it's you know i try, I try to quote some of what they have to say and you can just tell that you know w- what ads work and how much they use repetition you know the aflac duck uh You know, yes, uh, I I think that, you know, I wouldn't call it fighting fire with fire, uh, because, you know, the challenge, and I say this towards the end of of the book, which is how to go viral and reach millions, uh, that, you know, uh, those of us who are, you know, scientists and progressives, we're kind of constrained, it's a good constraint, with the facts. Um, If you are untethered from the facts, if truth isn't truth and you are in a you know, world of alternate facts, it's much easier to make stuff go viral, right? If you let me make up a headline and make up a story behind it, right, I can easily come up with something that's going to be emotionally compelling and outrageous. I mean, you know, one of the top fake news stories of, of the 2016 election was, you know, Pope endorses Donald Trump. So, yes, we, the, the, the people who are on the side of facts – uh, and science, we are, you know, technically at a disadvantage in the public sphere. Um, but again, that's all the more reason not to be put ourselves at such a disadvantage that we don't use things like metaphors and repetition and storytelling. Right now, when,
0: when Thomas Jefferson ran for president,
1: and one of the arguments
0: made to not vote for him by his opponent was that he had died. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't last that long, but it was out there for a few. You know, in those days, you could do that. You could say. This guy died and they, it was hard to check, you know, um, it chapter, the last chapter of how to go viral and reach millions is about resisting Trump. And I think that you shouldn't talk about that too much. I think people should buy your book so they can read the entire thing and then get to that chapter yeah. and learn stuff. You can talk about it if you want to. But I want to ask you, because you've thought about this a lot. What do you think the reason is that people like Stone or the Russians or others want to Trump as president?
1: Well, I think that, I mean, Roger Stone is a dirty tricks guy going back to Nixon's years, uh, you know, uh, Nixon's presidency, and he has been a loyalist. But he is a, basically, I would say, a party guy. And he, he's been a friend of Trump's for a long time. And for him, it is all about closeness to power. And, and, and of course, that's why a great many people associate with the person they come to associate with the person they consider to be the, the person who's going to win or the person who has the most power. And of course, that's a very old evolutionary thing, right? The, you know, the, the, the alpha male, if you will, the Russians, I think originally, I mean, I feel the Russians have, you know, a major goal of just chaos and disruption and undermining democratic institutions. And of course, splitting up NATO, You know, there's no question that the Russians, you know, you know, Putin has said many times that the the fragmentation of the Soviet Union was the worst thing that ever happened. And the next worst thing was that what had been their buffer states after, you know, losing 20 million people in World War Two, those now started joining NATO. And so from their perception, you know, the enemy was just getting closer and closer. I'm not here to defend any of this worldview. I'm just saying that that. They want. They are happy to have a chaos candidate, and that clearly was Trump. Now, you know, the other piece was that they really hated Hillary, and they hated uh, how she had criticized the the elections uh, in the Soviet Union in Russia uh, as being not democratic. You know, duh. Um, and the sanctions. And you know, there is a separate question which we do not know the answer to fully, which is how closely connected do, do the russians have stuff on trump we know that their businesses were you know the the russian the trump's business used a great deal of uh R- russian expatriate money russian mob money we know they're tangled we'll have to wait for mold to see how tangled they are but i do think you know the the thing that has hurt the russians the most is the sanctions they desperately wanted them to end and i think they thought that Trump would be able to do that. And Trump certainly said that he would do it. They just, you know, I think, honestly, Trump mishandled the situation so badly and the Russians were so ham-fisted in their interference uh, in the election that they made it impossible, even for Trump uh to to effectively undo uh the sanctions. So Trump is essentially a
0: somewhat less than useful idiot.
1: Yeah, I mean I I think but but in other words well they're getting I think, the
0: disruption for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean I think for a while they were getting very frustrated with him. But as he blew up NATO and as he blew up the the Paris climate agreement, I mean as you know, it's not like the Russians want aggressive climate action. They're fossil fuel exporters. And they've never agreed to any serious reductions. They're still coasting off of, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of much of, of their industry along with it. And, and most of what they've agreed to is, frankly, business as usual for them or, or maybe even less than business as usual. So they are quite happy to, to have uh, the Paris Climate Agreement uh, uh, blow up. And because they they want to sign oil and natural gas deals with everybody and make everyone as dependent on them for as long as possible. Uh, uh, another topic you cover in your
0: book, which I think is very interesting, because it's very self-referential to the book itself, which is your publication process.
1: Yeah, and and uh, and by the way, I you know uh, uh, I'm talking more about uh, Trump and climate. Here than I often, you know, I I, I do podcasts uh, focused on business and marketing, and 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 we don't. Uh, I but one of the things I talk about in the book, yes, I, I self published this book on Amazon. You know, there are a couple of reasons. One, as I said, the the, the, the book. Uh, the first time I I've written a lot of books on climate and clean energy. Yeah, I mean, my my top selling book of all time is was like ten thousand, eleven thousand copies, which you know that's fine for you know, writing on climate change, you know, for what I was going for. It's not very, and I could get publishers for that because there are publishers that can make out an existence, you know, once you're selling more than five or 6,000 books. But when I had been blogging for so long and learning about some of the things I talk about uh, in, in uh, how to go viral, I wrote this book called language intelligence, which was sort of an earlier version A very preliminary version, which really focuses just on the figures of speech and and not so much on storytelling and some of the other uh, other things, uh, including how to go viral. And that book, I uh, tried to get uh, very hard to get published. Bill McKibben actually suggested his agent to me and I his agent helped me cut a third of the book out and improve it. And I got feedback from people like Van Jones and uh, we could not sell that book. They, they basically said, look, you, 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 you have recognized, you know, experience and knowledge in climate change and clean energy. We would take a book on that. But, you know, what do you know about communications? And well, OK, it was the new media blogging. That's that had been, you know, my my experience. So I could not sell that book. And then, a friend, you know, someone suggested, well, you know, why don't you self-publish? And I looked into it and an Amazon had had made it incredibly easy to do it and not only had they made it incredibly easy they've solved the distribution problem that was always the big problem for the vanity presses is how do you get the book in front of people well the internet and amazon the world which started out maybe hard to remember as the world's biggest bookstore right.
0: it was a bookstore at one time
1: <laughs> it was a bookstore um you know now it is 50% of all e-commerce but it just goes to show you you can start small and i i um so I went. I worked through the process. There's a company, uh, organization's owned by Amazon called CreateSpace, which yeah. helps you, you, you do all that, or at least it did help you do all that. I mean, it would help the formatting and the editing. It doesn't, it doesn't do that part. But you get done. You develop. You have a PDF of a manuscript. You upload it, and you suddenly can access everybody on the planet. And now it's just a question of marketing. Right. The big advantage, as I say, in, in of Amazon is that a regular publisher, uh, if you publish books the traditional way, you know, a regular publisher takes eighty-five to ninety percent of the profits. So you got to sell a lot of books uh, to, to, you know, to, uh, to get your time back. Make, yeah. What, to make your Yeah. To, if you can get an advance, I mean, for me, I know, I would get an advance of five or ten thousand dollars. I'm not, you know, not I'm not the six-figure advance guy or the seven-figure you know, Stephen King or or JK Rowling. So it would be very hard to, to even make the advance back and only, you know, two or, th- you know, out of eight books, maybe three, you know, one or two came close and one exceeded it noticeably. So, you know, I, uh, whereas you will make 50 to 75% of the profits or, or let's say 40 to 70% of the profits if you publish through Amazon online, because they are they're they're not uh, they're paying for the whole back end of a publishing house.
0: You're basically I, I did a book with CreateSpace. You're basically a line in their database and a little bit of a little bit of storage on, and on a server. The other key thing is the print on demand on the paperback. Right, and it's not expensive. This print on demand is not outrageously expensive.
1: No, I mean you know in the old style of publishing they have to guess right how many books in the, to make in the first printing. And if they guess wrong, it is if – they, if they guess too much, now you're stuck with thousands of books that don't sell and they get remaindered for 25 cents. And we've right. – you know, I've certainly had that painful experience of seeing that happen. Um, and if you guess too little, your book might blow up, but there's no one to buy them. So right. with the print-on-demand, Amazon doesn't have to guess. It doesn't have to warehouse thousands of books that, and distribute thousands of books. Um, in the traditional model, a publisher – has to buy back from a bookstore any unsold books. Right. So, you know, it's, and and so, you know, uh, Bezos, Jeff Bezos, disrupted the model and and realized once you're, you know, obviously with an electronic book, a Kindle, you know, then then we're talking literally it's all just code, you know, even with the paperback, with the print-on-demand and what he's done. So, yes, then the only question is who is going to market the book? And if you know how to do your own marketing, then why should you hand over? if you're going to do all the writing of the book and you're going to do all the marketing, why should you hand over 90 percent, 85 to 90 percent of the profits to a publishing house? And, you know, you've published books. You've talked to authors. Certainly the biggest complaint authors have ever given me is the publisher didn't market my book. Right. So, yeah, it doesn't happen all the time anyway. And, and no, not, if you're not famous, yeah. I mean, yes, if you're if you're, you know, if you're Bob Woodworth, Woodworth, Woodruff, Woodruff, Woodruff you, you can be quite certain the publishing house is going to market your book. But every all the rest of us get a two-week window, and we either catch fire in that two-week window or the publishing house moves on to someone else. Because for the publishing house, it's just like a venture capital firm; they're going to lose money on most of the books and they're gonna make it all up in the one or two bestsellers, and they don't have a lot of time to throw after what they perceive as the losers. Whereas when you self-publish, well, now it's just, I can market it myself. And you know, one of the points of, of the book is this is sort of how you market books. You gotta make, you have to, you know, I think podcasts are the modern equivalent of a book tour. I mean, book tours You know, I, I went on some, I don't know if you ever did. They were just, unless you're famous, they're incredibly unproductive and frustrating. You know, if you can get 20 people to show up in a, in a, in a bookstore, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, that was like, you know, again, you're not Stephen King. So, um, so the point is the, the publishing house is not going to market the book for you, but it is going to take all your profits. So why don't you learn how to market in a digital world? And self-publish, so I can sell. I can make as much money. Uh, so language intelligence, uh, you know, sold. It's still selling. It sold twelve about twelve thousand five hundred copies. That is the equivalent of selling fifty thousand copies in a regular publisher, in terms of how much money I made. And fifty thousand c- copies in a regular publisher would be considered a bestseller, whereas twelve thousand five hundred after six years would not. Is, is not a, a book that is of great interest to most publishing houses. Uh, do you have any last remarks do you want to make about your book? Whatever your audience is, and sometimes your audience could be one person. You could be a job interview or it could be a date. Your goal is still to get people's attention and to have them remember you when you walk out the door. And right. if you can do that, you are going to be successful in a bunch of different enterprises, Pub in your professional and personal life. And so these are useful skills at, at any level, at the micro level, at the, you know, one person, 10 people, a hundred, a 1, thousand speaking, you know, trying to reach a uh, hundred thousand. Well put. I would
0: add in my day-to-day conversations with people who are political activists, how communications should work better is a constant theme these days. Lakoff's name comes up every day in these conversations. I've been recommending your book in these conversations, and I think people want to know how we should all be doing this kind of communication stuff because those people on the progressive and the democratic liberal side know that we're losing that game. We've been losing that game for 20 years, and we have to figure out, we have to put aside our, our preconceptions, which are wrong, and get some new ideas, which, as you pointed out in your book, are not quite as new. They're more like 25 centuries old. But they're the ones that have worked.
1: Uh, I appreciate all the time you give me. And, and, uh, you know, I do hope this is useful for, for some of your listeners. Buy the book. I guarantee, read chapter two, it will change how you write and speak. That is true. Absolutely true.